Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Our guest this week is Tom Dyer, world-renowned flair bartender who has been crowned the UK flair bartender champion a staggering 12 times. So sit back and enjoy our chat with Tom. Hi, my name is Tom Dyer. I am a bartender. Sounds great. How are you today? <laughs> uh, good, thank you very much indeed. Uh, very well. Um, I'm in self-isolation at home right now, so um, I'm stuck indoors. Yeah, I was the same about for about two weeks. I could come out of indoors today. But you're feeling well, aren't you? Uh, super good. Super good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like being stuck at home for such a long period of time, but I'm using the time really well um to try and make my website better to try and see what i can do do digitally so i'm not wasting my time just sitting at home playing call of duty or watching netflix sounds absolutely great so there is a lot to talk about when it comes to your career so i think it's time to to start first of all where are you from tom i'm from london london england i was born in a, a suburb called edgeware which is northwest of london so a lot of it is a quite diverse uh, city. How is Edgeware as a as a district? How was it when you when you grew up there? Um, very typical British. We were we lived literally right on the border of Greater London. So uh, our behind our or in front of our house was the M25, which is the border of Greater London. So I was only just inside London, and you know. Uh, 2.4 children, as we say, uh, mum, dad, sister, and a dog all live together. Um, normal. It was a very, very normal British upbringing. Uh, I had a nice circle of friends. I got bullied a little bit at school, a lot in some cases, but a little bit, nothing too crazy. Um, I went to secondary school and I went to college. I went to university. I dropped out of university. And, and I pretty much stayed at home. I lived with my parents until I was 26, I think it was. So quite a long time at home, but there is a good reason for that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get uh, straight to it. So what did you study at school? Well, when I was in secondary school, we had our normal lessons, English, maths, science, theology, uh, no, RE, religious education, which I, which I asked my mum to write me a letter so I didn't have to attend those classes anymore. Uh, but I was most interested in geography. But then uh, geography and computers, I could never have a computer when I was a kid. They were too expensive for our family. So when I finished my high school education, so that was secondary school, did, I went into a college. wasn't really college, but I suppose you could call it. It was sixth form in the UK. And I studied design. So it was like product design and it was something like information technology, basically. So we learned a little bit of coding. It was all about computers and spreadsheets and word processing and everything around computers, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then I, so I did that. It was information technology and design. And then I went to university to do computer science. And that involved coding, computer networks, um, 
And then there were some random modules as well about literally how to use a computer in our first year. By the second year, we were doing websites and, and a few other bits. But then I dropped out. I dropped out of university about a year and a half into uni because I discovered flair bartending, basically. <laughs> that sounds great. What was your first uh, contact with uh, flair bartending, essentially? Um, I, ha I wasn't allowed at that point, I don't think, to see the, the movie Cocktail. My parents wouldn't allow me to watch it for some reason. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there was a sex scene in it that I apparently was too young to watch. This is when I was in my early teens. Maybe they were, then, they were concerned about the consequences of your bartending. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> and then, so, so my first real experience was at a, a restaurant called Bennigan's, where it was just up the road from where I lived. My sister had started working there. And she was saying, she came home one day and she goes, oh, they do all that throwing the bottles around. There's a guy on the bar who's really good at it. And he flips it up and he catches it on the back of his hand. And I was like, I don't believe you. Rubbish. And we were standing over the bed trying to do it, hurting our hands, going, this is impossible. I don't believe that he can do this. No. So then one day we went for dinner up to this restaurant, Paul Bennigan's. And uh, she said, look, come, come and watch this guy. And I'll never forget the first moves that he did was he threw a, actually he threw a glass up behind his head and i think he i can't remember if he dropped that one immediately but basically the movie there was threw the glass up behind his head and i still use it today i put it in one of my videos recently and then threw another glass up behind his head and the one that which was behind his head he dropped and caught behind his back and he caught the second glass behind his head and then he did a couple of pours like a flip to pour and then backed into what we call a vogue pour and i was like cool you know, I was impressed. I was like, I wasn't like, oh my God, this is the, this is my life. But um, I thought it was super cool. And then I had from that, I remember I had, it was called a Pammy bottle. And this was a Coca-Cola bottle, which was shaped by, shaped like Pamela Anderson. And they had these sort of shapes on these Coca-Cola bottles. And I had an empty one of those and I used to try and flip and throw over my bed. And I did this for, I don't know, couple of weeks maybe and then and then I didn't think of it forgot about it again so so that was my first experience but there is a guy called Steve Rockle who told me that he he was the first person to teach me my first flare move and this was on a building site with my dad <laughs> so maybe it was maybe it was, I don't know what, how it's all correlated in the timeline but he taught me how to catch the bottle on the back of my hand and I, he, I kept, apparently I kept asking him to, to do more at this, at this construction site. Do it again, do it again, do it again. And it must have been after that, I then went to, uh, went home and started to flip this, this Pammy bottle around. And I think I used it until it smashed basically <laughs> and, and then forgot about it, you know? So that was, that was like my first experience muddled up in my head somewhere. What was that that you found so fascinating about it? Well, I'd always been somebody who was very fidgety like i couldn't sit still i had to move i had to do stuff my family always say to me especially now they're like oh you were always playing with your cutlery or or throwing things or balancing stuff in the garden and uh, you know i just used to try and do juggling type stuff and i was always fascinated with doing cool tricks i suppose um and then when I when it got to me learning those couple of moves with that Coca-Cola bowl, 
I think it was just a, a culmination or a continuance of that interest in flipping and throwing and catching and tricks and whatever else. Um, I then got a job in that same restaurant where I, where I went when I was 16 and it was still Bennigan's and I worked as a server's assistant cleaning tables and whatnot. But I, I was never really hooked on flair until later on. And what interested me about it was, yeah, it was this interest in doing something cool, I suppose. I was a very, very nerdy looking kid as a child. You know, I had fluffy hair like you probably people could see these days on my videos. I wore big fucking milk bottle glasses. <laughs> um, I was super skinny and this big hair. You know, this is why I used to get picked on a little bit. I was super short until late in my teens because I didn't reach puberty until really late on. So when it hit, it hit hard. That know, <laughs> yeah, big time. <laughs> you're a quite tall guy, aren't you? I mean, it's quite remarkable to think that you were the shortest guy in the room. I know it's incredible, right? But I was, I'm six foot four. That's 195 to the Europeans. And I, yeah, I was, I can't remember how tall I was, but yeah, I was one of the shortest. And what interests me in Flair was, but I suppose being this nerdy kid, being this um, square a little bit, as we call it, I was never like proper, proper nerdy, but I was just like, I don't know how to explain it. I was kind of friends with everybody and, but you know, I wasn't a popular kid. I wasn't the most unpopular kid. I was just another kid in the school. I wanted something to, to help me stand out a little bit. And when I discovered flair, this was something which helped me do that. And because of my fidgetiness, you know, I always wanted to move around and do stuff. I think it really helped because it also changes so much and you can make it how, what you want it. It's not the same thing that you do day in, day out. Although it's, you know, although you're, it is in a way, you're free to be as creative and, and open as you want and you can change it or as much or as little as you want every single day. So I think that's what drew me towards it. Um, I'm definitely somebody who likes to work more with my hands, although I'm sitting in front of a computer most of the time these days. And to work with your hands with, with flair bartending is exactly that. So let's go to your first job. How did you tackle it? How was it? Was it just a coincidence that you end up working in a bar? And, and how did you go about it? So it was back to this Bennigan's place. Uh, I got a job as this server's assistant or waiter's assistant. Because my sister worked there, I wanted to work there. I was like, it's the easiest job for me to get. And I got the job and I worked cleaning tables, unblocking toilets, running food, running drinks, tidying up. I did kitchen prep, I did everything. And the only thing I didn't do in that kit in that restaurant was cook. There's no chance they were gonna let me behind the kitchen. <laughs> um, and then when I turned 18, they said, okay, you have the opportunity to, to work behind a bar or you can be a waiter. And I thought, well, a bartender is much cooler than a waiter <laughs> and probably gets laid a lot more. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm this 18-year-old boy still because at 18, I still looked about 12. <laughs> and I was like, I got I work behind the bar. So... I went behind the bar. This was July 2000. The first drink I made was a gin and tonic. And Jody, my bar manager, said, yeah, you want to ask him what he wants. What do you want? Gin and tonic. Gin and tonic. I said, what's gin? <laughs> <laughs> Great start. <laughs> no idea. No idea. What's tonic? I didn't have no idea what I was doing. And 
So he's like, yeah, grab this bottle, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so they he gave me some training and I started working behind the bar and it was good and I started to enjoy it. But the clientele we, we had there weren't the greatest people in the world. And they used to not walk all over me, should I say, but I wasn't a confident person. I wasn't a confident kid, let's say. So it was hard for me to to deal with being in the weeds, being so busy and people going, oh, 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 excuse me, mate. Yeah, geez, my rock. You know, I did the job as best as I could, but they could see that I was stressed in my head. So I was doing all this hard work and I thought, well, I don't want to be working behind the bar. I'm not earning the money that I, need. I want to earn. I can earn more money being a waiter. So I left the bar and became a waiter. And I was a worse waiter than I was a bartender. <laughs> so I was like... Being a, wait, being a good well, waiter is not easy. Like, it's not an easy job, is it? No, it's not. No, no, not at all. Now I reckon I could be really good at it. But that's just my own arrogance thinking that I could. But back at the time, if I look back, I was, I was terrible. Because again, I didn't have the confidence, didn't have the organization skills, didn't have the experience. And then uh, I went back to the bar after that. But... While I was work, I, I can't remember the time difference between the, my first time being on the bar and being a waiter, but yeah, it was. I think I think I was on the bar for about six months, and during that first stint on the bar for six months, I, I got introduced to flair bartending again by my manager, Jody Myers. Okay, and that's uh, when uh, you started to flare quite a bit. Did you like it? Because it's there's a lot of grind at the beginning. I'm assuming, right, with flair. Yeah, back then it was much easier because um, the level of flair was much lower, the level of difficulty being achieved. But I liked it because I had people around me who were encouraging me. And that's so important the, these days. And uh, I think a lot of people miss in, who are in my, my own position and very similar positions is encouraging the new generation to improve and get better and flare more. So... That's probably why I remember Jody Myers so much because he used to, we made a tandem routine together, which I'll always remember the beginning. We used to tap the top of the tin, one, two, three, behind the head. Um, and uh, we did this tandem routine, so I got better at that. I had this guy called Lee Wooster who worked at the China Jump in, I think he worked in Tokyo. There was the China Jump, it was very, very famous in, I think they had one in Beijing, Tokyo and Singapore. And he worked in one of those. And he showed me a couple of tricks. And I remembered my my first introduction to it two, three years ago. So then I, I jumped on it and I picked up the moves pretty quickly. Um, and again, having those people encourage me was really, really good. And slowly what happened was is that I didn't give a shit about bartending. All I wanted to do was throw bottles around. Exactly what I see in the newer generation today. So I used to go home and I used to practice in my bedroom in a very, very small space. I fucked up my bedroom completely. <laughs> like there was wall, like the walls, the wall near me was completely destroyed to the point where I went, when I went away one, one time, I came back, my parents had redecorated my whole room and they said, you cannot flare in the house anymore. But then because I wasn't focusing on my bartending, somebody, uh, a guy called Amit Sood, who, uh, who's been around in the bar world for a long time. I always remember him saying this to me. I'm sure a lot of them said it. I'm sure Jody said it. I'm sure others said it to me. Was make sure you can bartend first and, and flare second. You know, it's very important that you know how to make a drink. You know how to give service. You know how to 
be a bartender before you start throwing things around because the throwing part should only be a bonus to what you're doing behind the bar. So at this point, I'd surpassed my teachers, Jody and Lee, in terms of what I, what they could do and what I could do. You know, I was making up my own idea, my own moves, my own sequences. They were probably shocking, but I was making them <laughs> up still. I thought I thought I was the greatest flare bartender in the world, as as everybody does. So it was it was the end of that that year, two thousand November two thousand, that Jody said, "I want to take you to the Roadhouse Grand Finals," which was obviously in Common Garden. I was still 18 and back then to go into the roadhouse, uh, you had to be 21. So we turned up on the Sunday and we were the first people in the building, literally the first people. And we sat on, I sat on station, station three, which was the judges station, which is basically the station which looked opposite the, the stage. So I had the best seat in the house, me, Jody, and I think his girlfriend at the time, Sean, were there. We had the best seat in the house. And I sat there from 12 midday because it used to open on the grand finals night. It used to open on 12 o'clock midday and close at 3 o'clock in the morning the next day. And we sat there from 12 o'clock midday until gone midnight. I didn't, I didn't drink one bit of alcohol and sat there and watched this whole competition. And it was after I'd seen the competition that I was like, that's it. That's what I, I want to win that competition. That's what I'm, that's what I want to do. And that gave me the boost to then start practicing a hell of a lot more. So like at this stage, uh, bartending sort of became like a support, uh, like your actual job became a support uh, act for you flaring or was it still uh, quite important to you? <clears throat> it was still very important because I'd only, this was only six months into my bartending career. And I remember coming back from the competition and telling everyone, oh, they were doing these bumps off of the arm and doing this. And I remember we went back to Bennigan's where we worked and they were closing down. And I'm standing on the bounce mats, which are outside of the bar. And I'm trying to bump this bottle off, bottle off my arm. And I couldn't do it. I was getting so frustrated. Um, so, I mean, that, that was when it sort of, I got pushed a lot to, to practice myself a hell of a lot more. And it was shortly after that, I think, that I was then told by Amit, you know, you need to flare second bartender first flare second so it was later on 2001 that i got a job at tgi fridays in watford i think it was actually may 2001 that i got a job in tgi fridays watford because back then if you wanted to have good training uh tgi fridays offered this sorry you got paid and you got good training um and that was a new store that had only been open since may 2000 so it only been open a year and i got a job there um, and they encouraged my flair again a lot more, but I learned how to upsell. I learned how to, I learned cocktails. I learned how to do speed service, set up, break down all the systems in place to, to run a bar, the American bar system, as we call it. Um, and I'll never forget it. I think that many, many bartenders around the world, especially flair bartenders started at TGI Friday. And although I didn't start there, it was definitely something which I was very, very, pleased to take the advice from the my, my peers to say get a job at TGR Friday so you can get good training so that you can then move on so bartending was very important um I had to make sure that I sort of took a step back from practicing flair a little bit and focus on learning cocktails and doing everything else although I never I never completed my certification test at TGR Fridays I still learned most of the cocktails necessary and and how to work as as a bartender 
So yeah, was that was a very integral part of my career for sure. DJ Fridays was because it comes up quite a lot in this podcast. Was one of the first bars, the first bars in the UK that actually had a proper full-on training program, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, if you look at the B at One guys in the in London or in the UK, they all came from TGI Fridays, and they give great training now to their their staff. Well, they did. They don't they don't own the B at One anymore, but the people who started B at One came from TGI Fridays, and TGI Fridays was the place to go if you wanted to be a decent bartender and get good training. You went to TGI Fridays. There wasn't there was bartending schools, but very 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 uh, unknown. Um, and they weren't as respected as what they are now. Um, but that's a whole nother story I'm sure we'll get to later. And, you know, TGI Friday was just the obvious choice because they gave such good training and because this new store in Watford had just opened, they were still very prim and proper. They were still doing everything by the book and giving the correct training and following the rules and regulations. Whereas a store, there was a TGI Friday store, which was much closer to me in Mill Hill. So Mill Hill store would have been literally a, a five minute drive from me to work. Oh, but I chose to go to Watford, which was a 30 minute drive because I wanted that training. I wanted to make sure that they dealt with me correctly and gave me the proper correct training. And the store was new and shiny and everything else. What they failed to tell me is that the people and the clientele that used to go in there were the worst clientele in the world. <laughs> But it was still it was still very good and and TGI it's a shame to to see TGI not so I mean say respected I think it's still respected but it's gone through a lot of changes over the years and it, it, in my eyes it doesn't have that same pull for bartenders to go and learn you know how to cut their teeth so to speak I would still tell a new bartender if they've like. In, in this day and age, we've seen a lot of flair bartenders in the world, like the professional ones competing, who've never worked behind a bar. And my advice to them is always go and get a job behind a bar. And the, the best place where they can go, where they can flare and work behind a bar is TJ Fridays. So, yeah, it's a shame that it doesn't have, doesn't seem to have the same pull as in what it did all those years ago. But it was definitely a starting point for many, 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 many of the big names that you know now. So after you've seen your first competition at Roadhouse, at what stage did you decide that you were ready to enter yourself into competition? What was your first competition? I <laughs> I thought I was ready way earlier than when I was. <laughs> like we all ready. did, actually. When exactly. it comes to competitions, <laughs> the first one's always a disaster, isn't it? Oof, completely. And I, you know, I had I my two teachers or mentors, should I say? I'd surpassed them, so I was like. Pfft. I must be amazing. So so what happened was, at some point, I went to go and get a job at Roadhouse. I handed in my CV, and they called me in for an interview. So I, I rocked up with a friend of mine called Graham Butler. That's right. And uh, the bar manager at the time sat me down. His name, was, his name is Chris Spencer. I still know him today. I still say thank you to him for this. And he said... You know, what's your name? Where do you work? What kind of sales do you do on the bar you work at at the moment? I was like, maybe 700, 800 pounds. Just to put into context, if you work behind the Roadhouse bar, you do about 5,000 pounds. <laughs> and 20 years ago, 5,000 pounds is a lot of money because they were doing singles and it was 240 for a single. Crazy volumes. It was mental in there during happy hour and, and any time. 
So he said, you know, here we do about five thousand pounds worth of sales. You've got to be able to multiple serve. And I said, yeah, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can do it. He says, well, if I say to you, uh, he reeled off a list of drinks. I remember Long Island iced tea was in there. I remember there was a wine in there still. I think there was a Jack and Coke as well. But he listed off about ten drinks. He goes, what did I just order? Uh, Long Island white wine, Jack. And I, I don't know. I must have got. 50% correct. I have no idea. So then, long story short, he basically said, look, because normally you do the interview, they give you a cocktail test, or they give you cocktails, and they say, come back in a week, you do your cocktail test, you do your pour test. If you pass that, then you do your trial shift on the bar. I didn't get past the interview. He says, look, I don't think, I don't think you're ready to work here. Um, I, you know, I think... You, you know, you should. He goes, Have you heard about the competition? And I'd just seen the one in November. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I came down in November because obviously I said that I flare. And he's like, Well, maybe, you know, you should enter the competition and and get used to the stage and, and doing those kind of things. And I was at this point in my mind, I was because I was like, No, I can work here. I can work here. And he says, You know, I'm really sorry. I, I don't think you're ready, but, you know, stick around, have a beer. I'll get you a beer. Got a couple of beers for us at the bar. And that was it. I never, I never got the fucking job. And I was so upset, so upset. But looking back, the reason I say thank you to Chris Spencer for this is because I'm like, he, he knew so well that I wasn't ready because I was still a kid. I still looked like a kid. And two th one of two things would have happened if I'd have got the, the, the trial shift there. Number one, I would have walked off the bar or run off the bar crying because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. Or... I would have got through it and started working at Roadhouse and probably never got into flair as much as as much as I did. And then probably hated bartending and my life would have been completely different. So I always, whenever I see Chris, I'm like, thank you. Thank you for never giving me a job at Roadhouse <laughs> <laughs> because it, it boosted me to, to say, Fuck you, I'm going to come back and win this competition one day like this. So at uh, what stage did you actually enter a competition? Oh, when did I enter? So it was two, 2000, September 2001. So I'd been putting it off. I've been putting it off. I'm going to do next month. I'm going to like a lot of people do. Right, I've put in my fucking application. I'm coming September 2001. At this point, I'd been to Roadhouse a couple of times as a guest. And the organizer at the time was Andy Collinson who's the organizer again now through WFA. And he, he didn't know me, we didn't know each other. He just knew I was this kid who was coming to do this competition. And he put me fifth on stage. And in the competition in September, 2001, there was Christian Delpesh, there was Christian Olden, there was Hugh Lloyd, there was Toby Hilton, a lot of names that people won't know. There was like 42 people in this competition. So I was coming into a competition full of fucking superstars thinking that I was going to do well, you know, and they called it the fun flare ground. And I thought, right, I've got a good chance because they'd split it into heats of five or six and there were six people in each heat. So there were six or seven people in each heat, let's say, and you had to win your heat to get through to the final, to the top six. So I'm looking who's in my heat. And I knew a couple of names because I've been looking in the magazines and that. Hugh Lloyd was in my heat. And the other names I don't remember. But I'm like, Hugh Lloyd's my biggest person I need to beat. I thought I could beat the others easily. <laughs> so I went up on stage. 
It was complete disaster. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember. Well, why was it a disaster? Like, was your thing not right or you dropped everything a million oh, times? Oh, man, or... I dropped it every second move, probably. <laughs> if I had the... I'd love to see the video of it, but I don't. It, we, You know, we didn't have camera phones back then, did we? <laughs> um, but uh, it was a disaster. I remember it was a disaster because I remember the crowd being completely flat I don't remember a, oh. a second. I mean, I had all the people that I worked with there cheering me on. I don't remember a second of it. I remember the first two moves. And then all I remember after that is dropping it. And the first two moves was... I threw. I had the first move planned. So I didn't really have a routine. I just had, right, I'm going to do these 10 moves, however many moves it was. And all the in-between was just freestyle. So I didn't know that you make a routine or anything. So the first two moves I had planned, or the first three moves, which was with a baseball cap. I was going to cut. I was like, I need to grab their attention quickly. So with the baseball cap, I threw the baseball, took it off my head, grabbed it by the peak, and I just throw it up very gently without any spin and land it on the back of my hand. So the peak of the cap is balancing on the back of my hand, and I'm balancing the baseball cap. But anyway, I started the routine. They got three, two, one, go. I picked up a glass, chucked it behind my back, dropped it on the floor. Picked up another glass, caught it, caught it behind my back, put it down, and then I was like, "Ah, oh, baseball cap! I forgot that trick." So I put the gl- <laughs> <laughs> I put the glass back, picked up the baseball cap, did the baseball cap trick. Way it was the best trick I landed the whole routine, and then carried on with my routine and was complete. It was terrible. <laughs> Let's just say that. How many times did you enter the competition before you actually won it? Um. So after that one, just to give you a bit of context, I was so bad. So the way it works is they put the running order in terms of how good you are. So if you're on first, you're essentially the shittest. If you're on last, you're the best. So my first mm-hmm. comp, I went there and <clears throat> I was fifth on stage. The second comp, I went there, I was first on stage. So clearly I was no, <laughs> terrible. But from that, the reason I bring that into the story is because I'd gotten worse. So I was like, right, you are at the lowest point you can be in terms of how good you are. It was like a a slap in the face as to me thinking I was the greatest in the world to being, hang on, I'm not as good as I thought I was. So my I, I set goals for myself. Not in write anything down, it was just in my head. So I made sure that on that running order list, I made sure that each t- each month I was lower and lower and lower down the list. So I never thought, right, I need to win the competition. I just need to get a little bit lower down that list, a little bit lower, until one day you are last on the list. And I'll never forget that. i never forget yeah. that feeling. So that was September 2001, my first comp. I won my first competition August 2002, which was the UK finals. And that was, yeah, every month. January came, I got a bit better. February and every month I made a new routine, new music, new ideas, new fucking everything. Um, my life was practicing in the garden whenever I was awake or not at work and working full stop. That's all I did. And I learned a little bit every single month. I watched other people. I took out, took tips and hints and tricks and advice and everything. Um, and I slowly went lower and lower and lower down that list until one day, top six, Tom Dyer. And I was, wow, this is incredible. And that was May, 2002. May, June, July, 4th, 4th, and 4th. Um, and I was like, right, UK finals is coming. I've got to fucking win UK finals. And I won UK finals, my first my first competition, August 2002, yeah. 
So did you feel a sense of fulfillment or did you feel like uh, I can do better than this? I want to nail everything or was it just uh, like, uh, how, how was the feeling at that point? Um, it was, it was awesome. I mean, when I made the finals for the first time was amazing. You know, it's like you, you, you forget it until you really think back about it. And when you win your competition, when I won it for the first time, it was this sense of achievement that I never really had achieved something so big before in my life. Being this nerdy kid, who wasn't the most popular, wasn't the least popular, wasn't super clever, wasn't super stupid. I was just Mr. Fucking Normal. Um, you know, to, to have that appreciation and uh, have my peers really congratulate me on what I, what I achieved and for my own personal gain, it was great. And all the hard work and effort that you put in to get some kind of reward from it later on kind of makes it all worthwhile. You know, it shouldn't be why we do it, but it really does help. And I really, you know, I've been super lucky in my flair bartending career that I've been able to achieve quite a lot. So I really commend people and the flair bartenders out there who compete year in, year out and never reach, you know, like a, a, a championship because some people never reach a high, high, high level. So I really, I I'd probably find that difficult, but at the moment I'm going, I'm, I'm, I do climbing. I'm sorry to just take a bit of a, a swerve. I do rock climbing. I know I'm mm. never going to be the world champion rock climber. And I don't want to be because I'm too old for that now and it's not going to happen. So I can still enjoy it. So I'm, I'm putting myself in the position, I think, of those who, who were doing the same in the flare, flare career without, I don't want, I hope that doesn't sound too arrogant, but when you win that first comp, it was it was a huge sense of achievement but then i was like right what's next i never wanted to lose that title of uk champion and i never really did except for one year where i didn't compete so i didn't technically lose <laughs> um i wanted to be world champion i wanted to win the roadhouse you know that's what i saw back in 2000 november and i was like i i need to win i need to win the the world finals and it was funny because that year, there was a bunch of people in the UK, especially one bartender who worked at Roadhouse at the time called Andy Francis, who said, you, you can win it this year. And I'm like, dude, I've only been flaring for like a year. <laughs> I can't win the world. I mean, I believed I could deep down. I was like, I got that, that, that boost of arrogance again. And I got complacent immediately after winning the UK finals. Oh, really? Immediately complacent because, again, I was this little kid who was... Chest puffed out, thinks he was the best. He's just won the UK Championships. Yes. And September came around. I did the September competition <clears throat> and I won that one. And funnily enough, uh, this is going to make you laugh a lot. I actually lost my virginity that after that competition in September. <laughs> so uh, at, a very, no at a very older age than, than normal. And... Uh, so you see, you do get exactly. <laughs> it took a long time, but you can imagine this kid. He's just won two competitions. He's just lost his virginity. I am on the top of the world, you know, moving into <laughs> the world championships. So I can't remember when I then got smacked down to earth again. But yeah, I I rode a very very you know I I milked it for all it was worth for a long time. You know. So at what stage do you? 
decide to start doing international competitions that uh, take you outside of London? Um, it was America uh, Battle of the Flare Gods, because when they came over in November, end of 2002, Battle of the Flare Gods. That's quite the name. Yeah, Battle of the Flare Gods, exactly. But uh, <laughs> it was run by Christian Olden, Juan Lorente, and Francesco Leone. And they done Battle of the Flare Gods 1, Battle of the Flare Gods. They invited us all. They bought flyers. They handed them out to us. And that's how you found out about competitions, not through any... There wasn't social media. You didn't have mobile phones to text internationally. Post. There was email, obviously. And there was MSN Messenger. Remember that? We used to use that a lot. But... um. What was I going to say? So we went over Battle of the Flare Gods. You got an invite. We decided we're going to go to this competition in Las Vegas. So then we got the invite, went over there. And obviously, international travel for flare competitions wasn't a huge thing back then. So three UK-based flare bartenders going over to America, they, they had no idea who we were or what we were capable of. And... You know, it really brought freshness to their scene in Las Vegas. So we did pretty well. I think uh, Adriano Marcelino came first, I think. Neil Lowry was second, I think, and I was third. And Toby Hilton, I think, was fifth, something like that. So we all placed in like the top six, two of us in the top three for this competition in the States. And then from there, you know, you're like, you already think you're the best. <laughs> And now you're going to the Las Vegas, amazing, and you've come top, you know, top three. You, you're you're riding this this cloud consistently, and and then you're like, right, where's next? I can take on any competition, and I think when you bring, bring it, it on. on, you know. <laughs> But the good thing about it is that you get to a state of being like people talk about this law of attraction and whatever else, whatever you want to call it. You get you talk people talk about this if you believe you are good enough or you can win or do something, you will. And when, you're, when you've got to that level of, I am amazing and I can win everything, you, you, you truly believe that in yourself. You know, we, are, we weren't super arrogant. We really, it, it comes across as we were these twats, to use a nicer word. But, you know, we, we, we just thought we were, you know, very, very good at what we did. And at the competition um, placements that we were getting were, were kind of sh not showing it, but we were doing well. We were happy with what we were doing, my point is. And the point is, is that if you truly believe that you're very, very good at something, you are going to achieve much, much better things. Do you know what I mean? But you really, really have to believe. And I think that really helped when, you know, when we started traveling and, and then we got invited, a whole other bunch of us. There was Gavin Smith, Steve, Steve Harmon, Andy Collinson. Uh, I'm not sure if Andy was there. Captain Boogie, uh, Neil Lowry, a bunch of other, other people. We went over, we got invited to Romania to do a competition over there. And I think that was later on in 2003. Romania back then, no one knew about Romania. When I told my my friends and family, they're like, why the fuck are you going to Romania? You know, they had very, very, very naive, view, naive views about what Romania was like. You know, they thought it was this poor stricken country with no infrastructure or economy. And I'm like, are you stupid? And it was a fantastic place to the point where later on in my life, I lived there for two years. But... You know, you just, it started from there. You did one competition, you did pretty well, and you, you got this confidence, which really helped boost you each time. And it motivated you to practice more. 
And I can't remember where it was, but I think it was later, later at Roadhouse where I got a slap in the face where uh, after I thought I was the greatest, you know, I, I placed third at a competition in Roadhouse in a normal sort of, which is great for for the high majority. But I, after winning two and then going down to third, I was like, shit, I need to practice more. So then, you know, so then anyway, I'm kind of going off subject. It was the international um competitions just just happened because the americans invited us and then slowly you get your name out there and the more you travel the more you get invited the more you know about and it just snow snowballs from there basically how did it work from a financial standpoint how did you finance these tra uh, travels were they paid or how did it go um i paid for las vegas myself i saved up the money and and went for my went myself um second place or whatever wherever third place whatever i got over there was two thousand dollars or something so that helped so cover the cost. my costs um and again luckily because i was lucky enough during all these international comps to, to place well it eventually became my career i became a professional flair bartender and i earned a decent living winning or placing well in competitions like a like a professional sportsman basically that sounds absolutely phenomenal. So, but you also have a lot of different projects happening. You have a bartending school, for instance. When did that started? So, when all the competitions were happening, and you know that was essentially my career, I realized that I can't do this forever. <laughs> you know, otherwise I'm going to be fifty years old trying to win competitions. This is not. This is not feasible. Um, so I was always trying to sort of get myself to do something else. And throughout that whole time, I was giving trainings. I was doing shows and performances. Uh, I was still doing a lot of events, working behind the bar, but I realized I wanted something for myself. And eventually I, I'd been doing some trainings for Red Bull around the Middle East with a friend of mine called Kiko. And I was like, right, you know, I can, I can teach people to bartend. So eventually myself and, and Jay the decided let's try and start a bartending school. And we started up this company called Creative Bartending School, which was around 2008. So it was a big jump from 2003 to 2008. Um, five years in between was just basically competitions and parties. Uh, so not much to talk about there. <laughs> and then <laughs> 2008, we started this school and it was shit, basically. We, you know, we were doing, <laughs> we were doing flare courses. <laughs> Uh, Luca Corradini came on one of our flair courses and told me the secret to make a good pizza. <laughs> with a bit of flair, I With imagine. a bit of flair. He had great flair, man. <laughs> Luca Corradini was a great flair bartender. Um, he could never nail it on stage, but he had some amazing <laughs> ideas. But uh, <clears throat> we were running it out of the uh, an, uh, a small room at the top of Cactus Blue, which was owned by the Maxwell's group who, who owned Roadhouse. They don't own it anymore. It's something completely different, but... We were doing flare courses and getting maybe five or six people. Then we did like a bartending lesson and we weren't making any money from it. It was complete disaster. And then we got this, this gig in Thailand, which was our biggest gig. And we earned a little bit of money from that, but essentially it, it was, it was terrible. But then one day it was early 2010 European bartender school contacted us at this point. I was living in Romania so they came over to London and they sat down with Jay and said, hey, look, we've got um, a bartending school. We've got a franchise bartending school in London already. 
which we want you to take over. I, you know, you've you've got to drop creative bartending school as a name and a brand, and you've got to take this one on. And obviously, our pride and arrogance were like, no, we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to drop our school. You know, we they they said, you know, have a think about it and get back to us. So Jay called me and uh, we thought about it and I was like, I really don't want to drop it. We've started it. It's growing. It's doing, doing all right. It's doing terrible. It's doing all right. And I remember I, <laughs> I, I called, I called Andy Collinson because he was, you know, well into doing his own businesses or help or running a business. I said, what do you think? He said, don't be a fucking idiot. Take the offer and open the school. So I was like, you're 100% right. You know, we have to do this. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. I was on the phone. Yeah, yeah tell them, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll do it. They said, cool. <laughs> Welcome on board. You've got a course starting in three weeks with 17 students. Good luck. Like this. And we're like, what? Enjoy. Yeah, enjoy. <laughs> so we had to literally, you know, buy all this fucking gear from uh, booze and everything. We, we did the school out of um, this bar in Clapham called Aquam. Is it Aquam in Clapham? Clapham High Street. I wouldn't know. A, yeah. a bar there, and we did that. Is it still there? I think so. Well, unless COVID has knocked it out, I don't know. But mm. Aquam, anyway, a bunch of bartenders later on, or at that time as well, I think were working there, like flair bartenders as well. Um, but um, yeah, two two months into that, March and April, we did these two courses, which worked. It was a nightmare. Obviously, I was living in Romania and Jay was living in, uh, was still in so London. Did you have to fly back for it? No. Uh, <laughs> because at that time, I may have flown back briefly to get things, to get the initial things set up, but we didn't realize how big this was going to get. You know, I was, I was, I had no idea how to run a business. You know, business studies at school, though, when I studied that, that was one of my lessons, business studies. I was terrible terrible at i think i got a d or maybe even failed that subject i'm not sure <laughs> and uh we we got these these first two courses running james trevilliam was the guy who was our instructor at the time clinton weir was our flair instructor anyway march came march uh, april march did those two courses and i said to jay i said look all, all of our shit is going missing in aquim people are stealing it it's getting mixed or students are stealing it or whatever said it's not working we need our own venue so we started to look for our own venue and we found this venue in Bermondsey which we're still in today and we took a risk we took a very 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 big risk because it was such a massive venue we 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 took it on we waste not wasted we used all of our money we maxed out all of our credit cards uh maxed out Jay's girlfriend's credit card um I had an American Express at the time I remember being at an ATM just taking out as much money as I could in cash until it wouldn't let me take any more money, basically, you know. <laughs> I took a couple of thousand out somehow. I don't know how, but I was just like, just keep bringing money, just keep giving me money until they won't allow me to so that we could pay for the rent and the deposit and the venue and building the bars and everything. And it was a it was a good risk, you know. And we're still, we're still in that venue today. So it worked out, luckily. So a uh, little side note, why were you in Romania again? So... 20, 26 years old, I was still living at home with my parents. I was traveling a lot. By that time, you know, I was I was away six or seven times per month. 
maybe more, maybe less. I was, you know, in one country being called and says, can you do a show in this country and changing my ticket and going to another country? You know, it was, it was an amazing, amazing time. And living at home with my parents at 26, I'm like, I need to get out. All my mates were living in London. I was, if I needed to go out and, and see my mates for drinks and everything, I had to get a train up to town, which was like an hour. And then we'd go out, have a good night. It's three or four o'clock in the morning. I've got to get home. I've got to pay 25 pounds in a taxi home. So I was like, I want my own place. And then basically Romania was, was interesting because of the women, you know, I was drawn to the lovely Romanian ladies and thought, well, why not? You know, I've got the opportunity to move over there. And <laughs> me and me and me and Steve Steve Harmon went for a couple of weeks, I think it was, to try and live there because he was going to come as well. And uh, I decided to come back and stay and live there. He never decided. And some people say, "Well, so you moved there because of the women?" I'm like. Yes, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, because, and I always used to say this to, to people who have said that. I said, before I answer this question, I said, if you could live in a place where you think, all like I say it to girls and guys, where you think all the guys are the most beautiful in the world, would, would you live there? They're like, yes, of course I would. Well, that's why I live in Romania. So... <laughs> So, but it was, and it was, I mean, there was a back, there was other reasons as to why. And I wanted to move away from home because I said I've been living, living at home this whole time. And because I traveled so much, the reason I hadn't left my house, my parents' house is because why am I going to spend seven, eight hundred pounds a month on a flat or an apartment when I'm never there? Because I was traveling so much. Whereas living in Romania, you can spend 200, 300 euros per month. And not worry too much if you're not there for one month, you know, you're not wasting mm. so much money. So it worked out good. I got to live in a place where everyone was beautiful. Uh, I had cheaper rent, you know, it was cheaper to live there. Good parties. I had friends there. It was, it was, an, and I got to, to explore the world and live in another location. So yeah, it was like a two year holiday pretty much. How did you balance uh... Because it, it sounds like you've been practicing a lot. You've been working your ass off at this stage. How did you balance your, your personal life with bartending? Or was it bartending your personal life, essentially? Exactly. Personal life was my job. Um, I had a few girlfriends throughout the time, but nothing too serious. Um, my, As I said to, to people, you know, you don't get anything from not sacrificing a few things. And that's kind of what I sacrificed. But... I was lucky enough to be traveling before it was the cool thing to do. You know, I've seen airports go from the size of 10 gates to international airports over the times that I've been able to travel. And uh, I wouldn't change it for the world because, you know, all my friends are in the flair world. I got to see and hang out with them a lot in different countries and different places. I got to see amazing places and do amazing things. Um, and when I was at home, because I didn't have a full-time job behind a bar at this point, during the day I was practicing non-stop as much as I could. You know, I'd wake up in the morning, literally get out of bed, if it was summertime this was, get out of bed in my shorts, walk downstairs, outside, straight into the garden and start flaring, still wiping my eyes from sleeping, basically. So, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I did have more time on my hands in that respect, but... Yeah, I didn't. I didn't focus on trying to get a girlfriend or or building any kind of personal life. I just wanted to flare, flare, travel, see the world, hang out, 
and and have a good time, you know, and party and things like that. Talking about your school, how did you evolve it from what you what you say it wasn't great at the beginning to the amazing product that you sell today? So <clears throat> obviously we changed brands. Um, creative bartending school was just myself and Jay the Trois with Clinton, who was our teacher at the time. When we joined uh, European bartender school as a as a franchise, you join a big conglomerate basically they had at that time i think six schools worldwide but um mm -hmm. they they obviously joining them they always they had a big footprint in the digital world of of bartending schools let's say so they already had students coming to london so this is why it was a such a, a, a no-brainer to take on this brand this european bartender school because they said, you've got 16, 17 students coming in, in three weeks. They already had students booking. You know, we already had customers. We didn't have to do anything. We just had to open a school. <clears throat> so in that instance, it was it was a no-brainer uh, for that respect. And for the first two years, you know, we were finding our feet a lot. You know, it was learning different things, dealing with major, major problems, uh, school flooding you know, every month because we lived in a basement and an old old lived in a basement. We were in a we are in a basement in an old old building. Um, you know, we had, we learned as we went, and we every every bit of money we got from the students and the school we put straight back into the school. And at the beginning, now we've got four hundred square meters down in our school. At the beginning, we used less than half of that. So slowly we started to make the room a bit bigger, use more space, decorate it a bit better and just just built it slowly, slowly, slowly and learn as we went and made sure that, you know, Jay was taking care of the money side of things. I was taking care of the running of, of things and yeah, just slowly built it up, you, you know, with the help of the team of European Bartender School. I mean, what makes them so good is they are great at marketing. And I learned so much first couple of years working with them and seeing how they market their courses and, and bring students to the schools um, and what we offer and how we offer it to the point now, obviously, it's just over 10 years we've been in that location. And um, now, you know, we fully understand how to how to run a school. And, you know, leading up to that 10 years, we were lucky enough to open another five schools in different locations. So. It takes a lot of time and effort and, and learning as you go. But as long as you learn from your mistakes and make it better next time, then you grow. But as if you if you just get stuck on expecting somebody else to always do you know, the work for you and, and bring the students for you and, and, and do it for you and you're just a problem solver, you'll never you'll never grow your business, I believe, you know. There's a lot of people out there who solve problems really, really well but cannot push their business forward. And I think that's what we learned very quickly was how to help push our business forward with the help of our franchisor who are marketing and promoting the schools worldwide. So you've been very successful into turning your bartending skills into a, a business format, like in a financially viable way. Uh, you have developed uh, different bits of equipment and different products how did you go about them did you like look at gaps in the market and try to cater for it or was it something that you always wanted to do <laughs> people are gonna hate this answer but i'm gonna tell you the, the the honest honest truth um the when it came to products essentially 
why my name is on a pour spout is because of my name, not because I wanted to design a pour spout. What happened with that is they said, we've got this pour spout, we want to put your name on it. And I said, well, let me use it. I know, I thought, spill stop is the future, pour spouts, woo woo. So I, I got this pour spout, it wasn't a spill stop, it was their own branded pour spout that they had, it was Beaumont, and I looked at it, I was like, it's pretty good, solid. And we put it in the school for a month or two months on all of our bottles, pour test, everything. We tested it out, I, I did timing counts on it, I did like thousands of pours by, to make sure that what the count was like, uh, and then said we need to tweak it. We need to tweak the cork and do this to it, and we need to tweak the spout and the speed and whatever else. But essentially, it's a fucking good pour spout. Um, so once we've gone through the, <laughs> the, the testing, the testing phases and made those tweaks, I we then put my put my name to the pour spout basically. So then, obviously, after the pour spout, we then started thinking about you know, other products, and I think every bartender would love their own line of of bartending products, and. You know, when the pour spout started to work really, really, really well, you know, I wanted to think, well, let's be honest with the world of bartending right now. The best tools that sell in bartending are your standard bartending tools, and they will always be the best selling tools. And anybody who doesn't know that, I'm telling you now, like your standard shaker, tin on tin, your standard strainer, muddler, spoon, all of the standard tools you see behind the bar will always be the best selling, pour spouts being one of them, which is good. If you bring out the new piece of equipment, which is gonna, you think, change the world of bartending, the chances are it's probably not because the I, the tools that we've already got out there already work amazingly well. You can bring out a different strainer, which looks good and does something different, but to get that into every single bar in the world takes a hell of a lot of money in marketing. And if, you're, if your strainer is five pound, but the other one over here is two pound, Tiger Tiger up the road are going to buy the two pound strainer and not your five pound strainer. And that's where the volume is, right? And that's where the volume is. So, I mean, we all want our own bartending tools and, and this is why we started to create the Tiki Shaker and the Grail. Um, the Tiki Shaker, because, you know, I'm not a hotel five-star bartender. It wouldn't suit me to bring out such a, a, a specified cocktail shaker in that respect. Um, tiki Shaker is a lot more my style. So we thought, well, I can do Tom's Tiki Shaker. It has a nice ring to it. So we thought Tiki Shaker would be a great idea. And there was already a couple of random designs on the market, which again, we took, we tweaked the designs, changed it, and that's how you got the, the Tiki Shaker. And some people ask, why don't I have a weighted Tiki Shaker? And I said, well, I want your Tiki Shaker to last forever. And when you have a weighted Tiki Shaker, that weight can come off. And at which point, you know, that you think that quality of that shaker is much less, whereas an unweighted tiki shaker, in my eyes, sometimes works better behind uh, a practical bar. So it becomes a lot more of a practical item than the novelty item. And then the Grail jigger is is a kind of is a sexy jigger, you know. The jiggers that you see are the the coat the double sided cone jiggers. They're the ones that people love right now. And you know, there's 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 some of the best sellers of the, all the best sellers are all the cheap ones. So again, we know that the Grail Jigger is never going to be in the, one of those high volume jiggers, but we know that people, some people want to be a bit different and we wanted to create, I wanted to create a jigger. I said, well, I've done a pour spout, pour spout, sorry. Um, 
we may as well come up with something to use the pour spout with, although in some ways it's a bit counterintuitive to use the pour spout with a jigger because you should be free pouring with the pour spout. But that's a whole other conversation. So using a jigger is the, the whole trend of looking good behind the bar and, and pouring into a jigger then into your, into your glass. And it always annoyed me, the Grail jigger, um, which is why we designed the Grail jigger how we did. It always annoyed me how you had these jiggers which were two-sided. So you had the big side of the cone and the small side of the cone. So you use your jigger and then you wash it and then you, which, which way round do you put it? Because you're supposed to put it down to drain out the liquid. But there's no way that you're drying each side of the, the jigger each time. So whichever way down you put it, pot liquid is going to drain into the bottom, that top part of the cone and sit there kind of stagnant. So I wanted to create a jigger which was essentially one-sided. So you just had one cup to pour in. And um, this is why we came up with the grail. We saw something else in a, in a picture somewhere. We're like, that's really cool. Let's copy that kind of design and come up with our own way. And I said, well, it needs to have... Uh, increments of five milliliters uh, until 50. It's one-sided, so when you wash it, you can put it down upside down, it drains out that one piece. So when you pick it up, you've got no stagnant water in there. Seems like such a, a silly thing, but in my mind, it makes sense to me. It's wild, is it? Yeah, yeah. But, and then it's got to look good. It's got to look different. It's got to stand out. So, you know, we, um, it's it's polished in this, in chrome. Um, all my items, except for the pause part, why the pause have my name on them in some way. It sounds super, super, super arrogant, I know, but you know, it's it's what you do when you when you create these items sometimes, and it's fun. You know, I'm lucky enough that I I, I partnered with Beaumont, who are a fantastic company, like an absolutely amazing company to work with. They've just brought out the Gorky strainer, so Gorky is a flair bartender from uh, Germany, who has never been like a world champion. I think he was German champion a couple of times, I'm not sure. But he was always one of those people you saw at competitions month in, month out, every single year. And uh, Beaumont contacted them and said, we really like the strainer that you're using. We'd like to make the, the same strainer and put your name on it. So they do that. And and they were, they're up for helping out bartenders and promoting bartenders. And it's a, it's a blessing to work for such a big company and for them to be so down to earth and, and help. You know, they've supported Flare Camp, which we did for nine years now. Uh, pretty much every, well, every single year, they give a bar kit to every single student. And that's been 500 bar kits or so. You know, they've, they've supported openings of other bars and bartenders. So they're really, really supportive and a, and a great company. So it's not as as, as elaborate and, and as amazing as some people think when creating your own bar tools because sometimes it can be super quick, but other times, um, you know, after the first one, which is the pour spout, a, a bit more effort goes into it. So I'm sorry if it blows any bubbles in or bursts and people are like, oh, that's a bit shit. But, you know, now we've got the, um, those those items out. Yeah, I mean, not to not to say too much, but we have been looking at, at more as well. So hopefully, when COVID and everything is over and we can we can get back to spending some money, then we can start uh, presenting some more ideas on on bartending tools. Looking forward to see some more. A couple of questions to wrap this up. At what stage did you decide that you wanted to do your last cocktail competition, and how did you go about choosing which one? So <clears throat> my last flare competition. It was for a, a couple of years or so. I was undecided. And I remember me, I was going, it was getting to a point, and let's talk about this this arrogance that I had before, believing that you're the best. Um, 
I rode that cloud or I rode that for a long time. And again, it, it's not it's not an arrogance thing, it's a confidence thing. And it, I am getting to your question, I just have to get the backstory. Um, it's, it got to a point where I was watching everybody on stage and I'm like, right, everybody I'm competing against, in my view, in my own arrogant view, I can I can beat every single person. If I did my routine, if everybody did their routine clean, I would win. Then, look, but I wasn't doing that, obviously. I wasn't winning every competition. There was people out there who could compete much better than me. Then we had Marek Pozluzny turn up on the scene and start nailing his routines. And I'm like, shit, he's fucking amazing. You know, if he nails his routines, he's winning. Okay, so now, although I wasn't winning everything, now I'm like, now I, I feel like I need to work harder. Anyway, as that progressed, I was practicing less for everything that was going on in my life in terms of schools and whatever else. And all these new kids started coming up. And all these kids who had been flaring for, I say kids, all these guys had been flaring for a little bit, um, had started to nail their, their shit. Tom McMowick, 2009, won every international competition that he entered, except for his own one in his own home country, unfortunately. Um, uh, Marek Pozluzny came up, you know, these were two massive contenders. Then you had Alexander Stefanov, Luka Valentin, Denis Trifonovs, And there was there was a lot more for sure. And I was like, okay, shit, you know, I'm not practicing as much as these guys. Um, I need to I need to start thinking of a way out <laughs> or thinking of a new way to practice. And I remember e emailing or messaging Gianluigi Bosco, who was a judge at the time, and saying, because I'd placed fifth or ninth or something, I can't remember, you know, and, and I was really upset with my performance. And I said to him, you know, am I, am I, have I lost it? You know, have I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm terrible. I can't win. I'm, I've got no confidence. I'd lost that, that arrogant confidence that I had. And it was showing in my, in my results. And maybe it was, I wasn't practicing as much. Maybe I was stressed with everything else going on in my life. But um, he said, no, no, you still, you still got it. He says, you're just not nailing it. And I'm, then I started realizing, well, I'm not practicing enough. So anyway, for a couple of years, Roadhouse World Finals was the one where I always put in the most effort. So I did the next year, 2014. I won 2014. So after I won 2014 Roadhouse Finals, it was at that point where I felt I can't do anything more. You know, what do I do more? I've won this competition twice now. The only thing I can do more is try and win it more than Tom McMalek, who's won it four times, which means I now have to do it. I now have to compete for three more years. And I need to, I want to try and get my competition winnings up to 100 wins. And I think I was on 80 by that point. So I was like, I've only got 20 to, <laughs> to go, which is a lot still, because that's still a couple of years of flaring. And I was like, okay, I, I'll set those as my, my targets, my goals. So people were saying, now you've won Roadhouse for the, for the second time. Have you got any more targets? I was like, yeah, yeah, but I never told anybody. But those are my targets. I wanted to win 100 comps and I wanted to win Roadhouse five times. Um, I soon realized that wasn't going to happen because <laughs> I didn't have the motivation to practice that much. I realized I had to practice a hell of a lot. So then it came to 2015 and I qualified for the world finals. And I was thinking about, okay, maybe this is going to be my last competition. And I didn't want to go to the competition to, to just do it and, and finish. You know, I wanted to go out of the bang. And also as well, I knew that to place in that final six was going to be hard. 
It was going to be the hardest final six I was ever going to try and get into. So I knew I had to practice hardcore. And to, with, again, with this arrogance will come through again for, for many years. I was, it was very, it was quite easy to place in the top six because there was that, there's always been a handful of bartenders who were, were winning the comps. And I was lucky enough to be in that handful. To, so to make finals was much easier. Whereas now there was a hell of a lot more people who could win this competition and make top six. So I was like, wow, you know, my training is going to have to be next level. And I don't have time for it. So I need to practice for the qualification rounds and make sure I nail those. And I knew that my final round, if my, my last one, had to be a good one. So essentially, before I got to that point, the reason I, I knew it was going to be my last was I didn't have time for, for training as much. I didn't have the motivation like I used to have. Although I loved being on stage, it's, it's an ego boost. And... I was like, I need, uh, I need to, I need to find a way out. And, and Roadhouse was the first one I started in in September two thousand and one. So Roadhouse is going to be the one I finish in. And at this point, we were in the flair bartending community. We were like, you know, difficulty has become far too much of a deciding factor for competitions. And I want to try and make a statement about that. And how can we make a statement? And me and Jumble Saint Pierre had discussed it for for a long time how can you make a statement and he come up to me one time was on a night out he says i got an idea he says what about if you just did bolt in for the eight minute final roadhouse grand final and inside i went and shit myself a lot <laughs> but uh i i thought about it i was like well yeah because then i don't have to practice as hard of all those difficult moves although what turned out to be the hardest routine i ever put together it was, you know, the, all the multiple object moves, multiple object moves that I were doing, I wasn't nailing them as, as, as happily as I wanted to. And I thought bottle tin is something that I love to do. And so it all just culminated together. You know, I, I, I was getting too busy. I wasn't motivated. I wanted to make this statement. I wanted to talk, you know, how can we show people that difficulty isn't the answer? So it just sort of turned out that, okay, Roadhouse will end up being my last, my last ever competition. I never really told many people. Um, and then I never told like people, no one knew that I was going to do this bottle tin either. So yeah, it just, it, it all just happens, I suppose. Um, and you take the opportunities and the ideas from people and try and, and run with it rather than try and do what you think is right every single time. Does that make sense? It does, it does. There's a lot of people, I believe, especially in the flair bartending world, who do what they believe they think they should do to win competitions and to impress others. I'm like, your best way you're going to impress somebody is to do something different. We live in a world of immediate gratification where you've got Instagram and TikTok and YouTube videos and everything. You know, you can watch somebody for probably balance 10 cars on his head if you really look like, long, you know, long enough. So... To really stand out above the, the the rest, you've got to do something new, and that includes in your niche and what you're doing, whether that's a cocktail competition, whether that's a flair bartending competition. So, yeah, it, I took that opportunity and ran and and decided that you know it was, it was time to go out with a bang, and that's how it happened. I was very sad to finish, but also at the same time super super happy to be able to focus on other things. Do you think it is easier to get into Flair today than it was uh, when you started? Because there is certainly more material for you to see out there. Or do you think that the fact that there is so much ease of access for the content makes it more difficult? That's a good question. Um, I think it's much easier to get into it, into Flair. You look at bartending now when people make cocktails and a lot more people are using Flair tricks 
or let me say tricks, whether it's with a jigger or a spoon or a shake or whatever it is, we're seeing a lot more, okay, what I call flair behind the bar. Um, we're seeing less of the extremes of flair, like competition flair, um, but we're seeing a hell of a lot more flair. So I think it's very easy to get into doing flair tricks, but to say, is it easy to get into flair? If getting into flair is doing a few tricks behind the bar whilst making cocktails, then it's much, much easier because you have YouTube channels where you can learn. I have a YouTube channel, just a shameless plug for you there. Thank you very much. <laughs> but uh, you have YouTube channels, you have online forms, you have bartending schools. There's plenty of places to learn how to do some flair tricks. Um, to get into competitions, much harder. I mean, anybody can do a competition, but to get to a level of being able to compete with the people in the competitions these days, there's a lot of dedication, a lot of practice. I mean, if, if I was had to, had to do that now at my young age, oof, super tough. I was very lucky to get into Flair when I did and be able to, you know, hopefully be one of the people to help push it, push it forward. Um, now we're reaching a level where there's so many different styles and variations of Flair bartending. Um, and that's beautiful. You know, I've always wanted to see that happen and see the the bartending world grab hold of it and 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 use these little tricks and and entertain basically. Flair bartending is entertainment behind the bar, and you know, flair. Let's just just a kind of side note. Flair is the word flair is to do something with <clears throat> style or originality, or to have. Uh, uh, you know, an inept ability to do something well. So if you do, you can you can paint with flair, you can draw with flair, you can run with flair, you can dress with flair. So flair bartending essentially is to do something with style and originality. It has nothing, nothing doesn't necessarily mean that you have to juggle three bottles. It's just the tricks developed over time because bartenders back in the 70s, 80s, used to use certain throws or tricks to speed up their bartending. You know, they'd throw a glass to one another, throw a bottle to one another, and then they would throw it to themselves, you know, and then the behind the back came about. And then it just sort of developed from there, like any job, like cocktails. You know, 20 years ago, the best cocktails were Long Island iced tea and pina colada. So they're still the best cocktails. No, I'm joking. <laughs> But, you know, you go to a cocktail bar now and anywhere in the world and you'll get uh, a smoke infused mezcal, which been aged in chili peppers for whatever, you know, you'll have the most deconstructed cocktail you can ever have in, in any big city in the world. We never had that 20 years ago, but it's the general the way things unfold. And that was the same with the tricks, as I like to call the flair bartending tricks. You know, people decided one day, TGI Fridays, let's make a bartending competition where they have to make cocktails and throw bottles around. And then Quest for the Best came around in America and they said, well, let's make performances. You know, let's put this to music and you do a performance. And it grew from there and exploded. And that's where we, we got to uh, today. Well, you know, obviously not 2020. There's been one competition, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, flair bartending is is much easier to get into for that respect. But I think what it misses is a, is a kind of structure. Or what I believe in myself, perhaps it may 
myths. I'm not sure if this is the right word, but flair bartending has always been this separate thing to bartending because of the, the extremes of competitions. You know, it's like flair bartending and bartending. You've got the whole bartending world and then you've got the flair bartending world and they very rarely mix. There's a few people that mix, but they don't always mix so much. And I believe that the flair bartending world has, has kind of separated themselves a little bit in that respect. Whereas if we just get on with it, as we're doing now, as people are doing now and using tricks behind the bar and not saying, check out my flair bartending skills or not check out my flair skills, it becomes more widely accepted. Whereas if you're like, check out my flair bartending skills, I'm a flair bartender, I do competitions and I do all this and blah, 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 blah. Like I did with my peers for many, many years, you segregate yourself. You label yourself as something and you segregate yourself from the world that you're a part of. Whereas if you just do it without worries of labels or whatever, same mixologist, same liquid chef or whatever you want to call yourself, you label yourself as something, you segregate yourself into a certain factor, I believe. Whereas if we just get on, get on with what we do, remember what we're here to do, and that's make cocktails and provide good entertainment and good fun, everybody's going to have their own way to do that, whether it's with tricks, with the way they speak, with the way they serve, the way they stand, shake, roll, throw, whatever it may be. Um, it's, it's just the way that everybody bartends. And I think every bartender in the world who's any good has their own level of flair because every bartender shakes in a different way, throws in a different way, pours in a different way, rolls, whatever it may be. That's all, that's all a, a type of flair. So if we just kind of get on with it and, uh, and, and help the younger generation get into learning some new techniques and tricks and whatever else, then we'll see this development of, of the tricks and flair bartending in general grow a hell of a lot more. I'm sure we'll see a lot more competitions and I'm sure we'll see a lot more crazy things from bartenders worldwide. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. And I agree with you. I think that there has been this, I think it's an unnecessary separation, you know, to just uh, segregate the two. But, you know, as you mentioned now with YouTube and Instagram and all that, you can see that, you know, the two styles are be are starting to become one. And I like to see how people are integrating tricks into like day-to-day -day routines, you know. That's a great thing to see. Cool. So it was great uh, to talk to you. And I think I'm going to ask you the last question, which is uh, the question we ask everyone. I'd be very curious to hear your uh, answer. If you could choose your very last drink, what would that be? <laughs> wow. Ooh. I mean, there's, there's a lot of witty answers I want to say, but um, it's a really tough question to answer. I mean, a lot of people would expect me to say a pina colada because of what I've been pushing. Yeah, I was, about, I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it possibly would be the obvious answer, but I, don't, I really don't want to say pina colada. The first one that came into my mind was a glass of water because then I could last just a little bit longer. You know? It makes sense. But, yeah, <clears throat> but um, I think it probably would be a pina colada. You know, it's it's the most obvious one in that kind of scenario. If you say a desert island sort of um, drink, it's it's an easy drink. It's a, it's, it's a great cocktail, whatever anybody says. There's a song that's got it in it. It's got so many things named after it. And it's such a... a Pina coladas are just great. They're great, man. They're on every single menu around the world or, you know, variations of. And I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in simplicity. And, uh, and we all know that the simple cocktails are the best, essentially. So 
I'd probably say the pina colada, but it would have to have a cocktail umbrella in it, just to be sure. Mandatory. <laughs> you know, pina colada is the only cocktail I've ever made to my mom. Like, I've only made that of pina colada. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, there you go. So if my mom approves it, that must be the right exactly. one, right? <laughs> cool, Tom. It was awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I know I waffle on a bit sometimes, but... Uh, I hope that if anybody got to this point in the podcast, I hope it's been informative and thank you to you for for inviting me on. I really do appreciate it and it's nice to to share to share your story and and uh, and maybe some people will listen to it and maybe be inspired by it and maybe some people will just think whatever they want. So, thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Tom. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for McKelly, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Besser for Adrian. Thank you for listening.